0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. Now, you are now tuned into our OITE review. Now, if you are a longtime listener, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, we are doing an OITE or orthopedic in-training exam review series where we go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And our last one was trauma, and now we are starting off with sports so myself and dr spencer woolwine will continue this on so without further ado we all hope you enjoy this episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole hello everybody and welcome yet to another episode of the nailed it ortho Podcasts in particular our OITE review series and um and we'll talk about a little bit of sports but first uh congratulations must be in store here for uh, Dr. Woolwine you are officially done done so uh congratulations man
1: uh thank you yeah it feels uh it feels good to have a uh, graduation behind me and a fellowship uh up ahead so I'm I'm excited
0: yeah, and I know you'll do a, a great job in fellowship over at uh, Emory in Atlanta, in my old stomping grounds, at least as far as Atlanta is concerned. So, um, uh, yeah, man, just congrats. I know it's a long road um, from from after after high school, you know, getting to this point. It's a very long road. So, uh, congratulations yet again. Well, thank you. Um, let's uh, let's hop into it today. Let's talk about some. Sports and uh, see what we get through. You we'll know, do a little bit of general sports and just kind of go from there.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and get uh, started here. So, um, what exactly is a concussion and some of the symptoms?
0: Yeah. So uh, you know, this is one of those those um one of those high yield sports things, especially if you cover games. But a concussion is pretty much a brain injury that's just due to an impulsive force that's transmitted through the head. This can be Uh, from a, from a blow. It can be from a fall. There are many different mechanisms of injury from how you can uh, sustain a concussion. And then along with that, all the symptoms are highly variable as well. Uh, But some of the symptoms of a possible symptoms of a concussion can be headache, uh, emotional liability, cognitive impairment, behavioral changes, sleep disturbances, and Contrary to popular belief, loss of consciousness does not have to happen in the majority of concussions, and it actually doesn't. I think around 80 to 90 percent, there is no loss of consciousness. So um, just know, you know, you always just want to be on the lookout if you have a player that comes over to you and if you're covering a game and you know, they're saying they just had a fall and they're having to continued headache and, you know, seeing some, um, uh, seeing some spots and having some balance issues. You just want to have that high up on your uh, list of differential diagnoses. And, you know, if we are concerned that a player does have a concussion, uh, should they return to play that same day in the game? Uh, no. And I think that that's probably the, the most tested
1: concept uh, in uh, or about con- concussions is that uh, they'll, they'll give you this long vignette. They'll talk about it. <clears throat> either a football player or soccer player sh- got struck in the head. Uh, maybe we're down for uh, 30 seconds, but they don't really recall exactly the events, what happened, but um, uh, it, the, the questions to them will be like, what's kind of the next step? And it's really, there's no same day return to play. And it's this, it's a long, gradual uh, step process to get these athletes back uh, into sports, and so uh, it, you want to follow this uh, this progression of really no activity. Um, put them in a low stimulation environment, and uh, so it's uh, like no video games, no TV or bright lights. And then once they're symptom free, you can start light exercise then sports specific exercise then non-contact drills then full contact drills and then once they've cleared every stage of this which should take about 24 hours for each stage they can return to play so most athletes are really not getting back to sports um until about a week after their concussion so uh uh I mean, mostly mostly for the football players, and that's going to be the most common vignette. But uh, really, any athlete that sustains a concussion, they're they're probably not getting back within a until a week uh, after that has happened. Um, but uh, I guess what's the what's the biggest concern if you do either? Uh, and in the vignette, they will always talk about, oh, it was the star quarterback or the star running back or um, whatever. Um, what, what's the biggest concern if they uh, return to play too soon?
0: Yeah, so they return to play too soon or if they're still having, you know, some symptoms um, and, you know, they go back and, you know, they get another hit or, or something happens. They can have what's called second impact syndrome, which, uh, you know, can pretty much lead to a loss of autoregulation of the brain's blood supply. And this actually has a pretty high mortality rate if this happens of around 50%. So, again, you want to be on the lookout for second impact syndrome. That's why we do not send these players back to play when they're still having symptoms. And you want to kind of go through that graduated, you know, five stage uh, return to play protocol that you just spoke about. Um, Speaking, since we're, you know, kind of on this topic of concussions and and head injuries and athletes, uh, what is a a chronic? Traumatic encephalopathy. I know we've heard a lot about this in the news, or at least heard a lot a couple years ago, but it's it's still in the news every now and then. So, what's chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Uh,
1: Yeah, it can be defined as a neurological degenerative disease due to repeated head trauma. Uh, So, you see it in football players, you see it in boxers uh, or other fighters, uh, MMA, uh, and the like. Um, And uh, you you really see these just kind of, I mean, young young people who otherwise should be uh, functioning well in society in their late 40s, early 50s, where they're just showing early signs of cognitive difficulty. They can be very emotionally labile, uh, cognitive impairment, a lot of behavioral changes. They don't really uh, sleep well. And so uh, and this is a, kind of the big push now for uh, a lot of the sports organizations, notably the NFL, with uh, their kind of change of helmet protocols and how they're trying to to come up with a good way to decrease the amount of repeated head trauma that these <clears throat> uh, athletes are are sustaining from peewee football all the way up through the Super Bowl. So, uh, yeah. yeah, the CTE, I think, is with how... These athletes are getting so sport specific at such a young age. I mean, you have kids that are only playing football starting at like nine or 10 years old. I I hate to see this kind of progress in, into into this just because of that repeated trauma. So uh, I think more research is being done and needs to be done. But um, I guess it, at some point, there's only so much you can do to prevent it. Yeah, but, for uh, sure um kind of moving away from the the head and the brain um a little bit further down uh what what's defined as a stinger or a burner
0: yeah you know i, I remember at first i i don't know why but i thought it was uh, this was pretty confusing i thought this and concussion were very or somewhat similar but they're not so yeah a stinger or a burner is uh is kind of when you have like this transient or uh, unilateral a brachial plexus injury. So they may, you know, fall in, in on the side of their neck. You know, they have that kind of stretch or that neuropraxic injury. And uh C5, C6 nerve roots are the most common. But you know, they'll they'll fall this in this weird way and afterwards complain of you know unilateral burning pain or parestitis and to the, to the uh to the upper extremity. Um, but they'll still have you know painless cervical range of motion. And um the thing is with these you know stingers or burners is that these Symptoms typically resolve within fifteen minutes. And uh, you know, they're they're able to have, you know, full range of motion, no weakness and numbness. So uh this is kind of again just that transient neuropraxia, uh brachial plexus uh, injury uh, just from kind of that stretch. And sometimes they they fall the wrong way. But the big things to know is they'll kind of talk about these patients having, you know, burning pain um, down one arm and the symptoms have resolved uh, within 15 minutes. uh, So they have full range of motion, no weakness and no numbness. So I think these players are allowed to go back into the game, which is, I guess, what the one big things they'll test you on. Uh, And since we're, since we're on this kind of neuro slash uh, nerve uh, upper extremity sports stuff, now what is a spear tackler spine and kind of what, what's the importance with that uh, as far as sports and return to play?
1: So uh, this is a kind of an acquired uh, cervical spine stenosis and and a loss of that normal cervical lordosis from, uh, either, uh, like a history of repeated spear tackling. And for those out there that aren't really aware of exactly what spear tackling is, it's really tackling with, uh, your head leading first rather than, uh, your shoulder. Um, so it's, uh, I, I mean, it. I don't think it's very common, but it's definitely something to look out for for some of these athletes that are coming in with early signs of uh, C-spine stenosis and uh, either unilateral or bilateral symptoms and uh, bringing up bilateral symptoms. Uh, if you have a player and they're complaining like of like a stinger or a burner type of uh, pain, but it's in the bilateral upper extremities, that's usually an indication to get an MRI. And I, I think that that may also be tested as well. Um, so just one thing to kind of keep in mind that bilateral upper extremity symptoms for uh, athletes generally means uh, to obtain an MRI of the C-spine. Um, uh, and I don't know if you wanted to add any anything to spear tackler spine. I haven't really... Read much about it or know much about it. So, I don't know if you want to uh,
0: elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I think the big thing with that is that it is a, a contraindication to return to play. You know, so like a stinger, burner, you know, they can return to play after, you know, because their symptoms resolve. But, you know, these guys that have these or these athletes that have a uh, spear tackler spine, they are contraindicated to uh, to go return to play. I think that's kind of the big thing. And like you said, they have a that history of spear tackling or leading with their head. Uh, they can get that acquired C-spine uh, stenosis. Um, so, yeah, you know, those are, I think those are big things. You know, they talk about that, that Pavlov ratio uh, less than 0. 0.8 when you're kind of just looking at C-spine yeah. uh, pathology, but no, that's basically, that's basically all I got for spear tackling the spine. Um, well,
1: all right. So I think uh, head and neck are,
0: are uh
1: uh, I think the the key things to focus on when you're preparing for the OIT and the boards are really that the concussion and uh, the cervical spine uh, stuff. So, kind of continuing continuing along with general sports, um, what uh, what's the female athlete triad that we've all kind of heard about through med school and then into our practice in ortho.
0: Yeah, so the female athlete triad, and actually we have a recent episode with Dr. Mulcahy who uh, described this and talked about this very well on the podcast. So if y'all want to dive a little bit deeper into that, go on and check that episode out. Um, but just to kind of recap, uh, what the triad is is the, the the primary thing is they have low energy availability availability. So they just, they're have a, they're in a low energy state. And this going to be you know accompanied with an eating disorder as well. Uh, the second thing is that they have menstrual dysfunction. OK. And then the third thing is that they have an altered bone mineral density. So, you know, a lot of the vignettes or a lot of the questions I've seen on these is they'll talk about they'll kind of break, bring up, you know, this this uh, they'll have this like, you know, this patient for you that, you know, hasn't had a period in like two, three months. And uh, she arrives, you know, due to having a stress fracture or something like that. And that's a big thing that you want to be able to look out for on these um, uh, females with these athletes, tri- athletes triad. And uh, when, you're, you kinda, when you're looking at evaluating their bone marrow density, there are some proponents to get a DEXA scan, which is a study of choice for, again, evaluating uh, bone marrow density in patients that these female athlete trials. So just to recap, it's low energy availability, uh, menstrual dysfunction, as well as altered bone density. Now, um, what, what bones are, you know, since we're talking about stress fractures and, you know, we're talking about, you know, the female athlete triad, uh, what bones are commonly involved uh, with stress fractures in athletes in general?
1: Uh, yeah, so I think the, the most common one you'll see is either the tibia shaft or uh, femoral neck, um, but really any weight bearing portion Uh, of the skeleton in somebody with, uh, like you talked about, that altered uh, bone mineral density. Uh, So you can see it in the pubic ring. There's a section of rib stress fractures, uh, which I think is just due to kind of repeated um, excessive chest wall expansion during high-intensity exercise. Uh, But I think the key ones to know about are the uh, femoral neck and the tibia shaft. Um, So I I think the uh, this may be more of a I guess the OIT will test this, but just a kind of general thing to know about when you're out in practice is uh, we kind of already talked about with the female athlete triad, but it's really you'll get the young female athlete in your office uh, with a stress fracture. Um, What kind of things are you focusing on in the history
0: uh, to, to really hone in on exactly what's going on or what led to that. Yeah. So, you know, just to recap again, other things you want to know about is one, what's their menstrual history like? You know, um, do they have illegal menorrhea? You know, how often are their periods? Are they irregular? Um, are they on any type of birth control? Um, next, you want to know their diet, what are their eating habits like? Um, you know, what do they eat? And how often do they eat? And how often do they train? Do they train, you know, once a week? they train three, three or four times a day. Uh, what kind of training is it? Is it long distance running? Uh, you know, those are all important things that can help clue you in towards, you know, uh, the female athlete, try it. And that you definitely want to make sure that you ask about and know, especially when somebody shows up in your clinic with a, uh, just for example, a tibial stress fracture. Um, now, What area of the tibia is involved with these stress fractures when when these happen?
1: Uh, Yeah, so it's primarily the uh, uh, anterior cortex, uh, where you'll see uh, either uh, bony changes similar to like a bisphosphonate type of uh, changes in the proximal femur, uh, where they do have some remodeling potential. The uh, concern there is that the anterior cortex is the tension side of uh, the tibia. And so you can start to see uh, something called the dreaded black line uh, on radiographs, on, mostly on the lateral radiograph. Um, but if the radiographs are normal, you do want to consider an MRI uh, if there's like point tenderness over the anterior tibial cortex that, and a history that fits uh, with that um so what would be uh, i mean we have a let's say we have a patient with that tibia stress fracture um what are the uh treatments uh for that
0: yeah so when you're looking at you know treating these uh, tibia stress fractures um you know most you know most uh most of these patients are going to go just non-operative treatment and you restrict their weight bearing. And then you also need, you know, kind of fix or address some of their underlying pathology and try to, you know, do uh, some diet uh, modifications. Okay. Uh, and I've seen some proponents, if uh, if there's a stress fracture and you can see a, see an entire fracture line, some people may cast. And I know some, uh, some physicians may actually uh, prophylactically or, or fix these, but I think the overall uh, consensus, or not consensus, but the first treatment, you know, just for this stress reaction or these stress fractures is to uh, restrict the weight bearing and um, and start with kind of these diet modifications. And uh, I know right now we're talking about tibia shaft stress fractures, but we know there are also femoral neck stress stress fractures as well. And uh, so what are some of the things you just kind of pay attention to when you're looking at femoral neck fractures?
1: Yeah, so uh, the um, the femoral neck is, uh, I mean, just like really the, the tibia shaft has a tension side and compression side uh, to it. And the, uh, the difference is that um, fractures on the tension side of the femoral neck or the superior lateral femoral neck uh, are treated differently than compression fractures of the femoral neck, which is more that... Um, inferior medial portion right at the calcar. And so uh, compression-sided uh, fractures are, uh, I mean, thankfully more common, and those are the ones that are treated with rest and partial weight-bearing until symptoms revolve and then a gradual return to activity. While tension-sided fractures over the superior uh, femoral neck are more concerning because they can uh, continue to collapse into further varus. And, uh, they, they are the ones that actually may need surgical intervention in the form of, uh, PERC pinning, uh, versus a DHS. Uh, so definitely paying attention to, uh, which side of the femoral neck it is, uh, either in practice or on the test will, will change your management. Um, but, uh, moving along from stress fractures uh and into uh other i mean things that athletes go through that we don't usually think of to be treating as orthopedic surgeons but um uh they, they're just like the superficial infections that as a teen physician you need to be aware of but what's the most common site of infection in athletes
0: yeah and i, I think like there are some questions on our on last year's oic uh, all about like general sports medicine practice too so uh yep. you know this can actually help get you some extra points if you look and study this stuff um but yeah so just to answer your question most common side of infection in athletes is actually gonna be the skin and that's gonna be from person to person contact and when you look at the organisms uh hsv or herpes simplex virus and staph aureus are the most common pathogens so uh, again, the skin is going to be the most common site of infection in athletes. And, um, you know, since we're since we're on the skin, uh, what's what is the treatment for like, you know, a simple abscess?
1: Uh, yeah, so simple abscess, uh, you want to use kind of moist heat, topical mupirocin for uh, about a week to 10 days. And then um, if it doesn't begin to resolve on its own, uh, then you can consider uh, incision and drainage. Uh, of it and then uh more severe infections those that have a kind of a larger uh, area of erythema or induration ones that are causing pain and and dysfunction of the limb they're the ones that you want to be a little bit more aggressive with and do an incision and drainage earlier and then start them on, on true uh, oral antibiotic therapy but uh i would i would say that um not, not everybody needs to be treated with antibiotics and we probably do treat, we, we probably do over treat with, uh, oral antibiotics. So, uh, just keep in mind that you're, I mean, when you're dealing with, with athletes, you're, you're dealing with kind of younger, healthy people. So, um, I think that, uh, really kind of letting the body do its thing and using just heat and topical mupirocin or, or neosporin will, Uh, resolve most of these simple abscesses, whereas the deep ones do need an IND. Um, But uh, say we have a a vignette involving a a wrestler and uh, they're describing like a cluster of vesicles with an erythematous base uh, on uh, the lip of a wrestler, what's the most likely diagnosis?
0: Yeah, so this is a, you know, classic uh, a presentation or like a classic question, and uh, I think a lot of times they may actually just show you a picture, so you have to be able to recognize, um, you know, just, you know, a patient with an erythema space and a bunch of of vesicles, and that's going to be herpes, that's going to be herpes simplex virus. And um, how you treat this is you actually treat this with oral systemic antivirals. So that's something like acyclovir, cyclovir, et etc. And typically these patients can return to play within 120 hours. But some patients, you know, that have this, uh, cannot return to play if the if they've had lesions within 48 hours, uh, they've only had less than 72 uh, hours of antibiotics, where they have moist lesions. So. You know, if they said, "Ah, oh, you know, Doc, I just had this uh, this morning. Am I good to play tonight?" The answer is no. <laughs> you are not. You are uh, you are not good to play, um, especially if you've had these lesions within within two days. So again, treatment for this: make sure you get these patients some oral systemic antivirals such as a cyclovir or valacyclovir. Um, now we just talked about you know patients having clusters of vesicles on an erythematous base. Uh, now, what if a wrestler arrives with honey-crusted lesions around their mouth? What is the most likely diagnosis and return-to-play protocol in that situation?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh, it's uh, it's impetigo from beta hemolymic strep or staph aureus. And uh, like you said, um, they may just say, hey, you got an athlete with the Lesion found in picture A or figure A or whatever, and definitely knowing that this uh, the difference between uh, impetigo and herpes uh, can help you uh, get points on on an exam or uh, help you treat these athletes out in practice. And um, the the difference with the honey crusted lesions, uh, they are not. Due to a virus, they're due to a bacteria. So you can return to play once the uh, the crusting is gone and they're on their meds for uh, about seventy two hours, similar to the the herpes. But just know that you're treating them with with true antibiotics rather than a cyclovir, like you're doing with the herpes simplex virus. Um, and I think probably the most common. Infection uh, in an athlete uh, vignette or question stem that we'll see um, is really one that involves like uh, what's on the differential for an athlete with a high fever, sore throat, uh, lymphadenopathy, um, and maybe some uh, abdominal discomfort and swelling.
0: Yeah. So, you know, kind of the buzzwords and what you're thinking of that is Epstein-Barr virus or EBV. You know the kind of infectious mononucleosis, man. Man, just had like a a flashback to the third third year med school (laughs) saying that. But um, yeah, you're you're on the lookout for uh, Epstein-Barr virus, and you know some of the athletic complications from that is you you can have a splenic rupture, which typically occurs within three weeks. Uh, These patients can have tonsillar enlargement, which could you know, in some cases lead to upper respiratory tract blockage, and these patients do have chronic fatigue as well. And, you know, the thing is with these patients that are, you know, have these EBV infections is that you want to limit contact sports for at least three to five weeks, and, and a splenomegaly must resolve before you uh, bring these patients to return to play, because again, you're worried about that splenic rupture in these patients uh, that have these splenomegaly. Um, so again, you want to limit contact sports at least three to five weeks, and the splenomegaly must resolve. Uh, so just moving moving forward into some H uh, E E N T uh, orthopedics uh, sports. Uh, what is a a, a high, high fema? And I'm I'm probably butchering the the pronunciation, but uh, what is high fema? And um and what is it associated with?
1: Yeah, so a uh, uh, high fema is an accumulation of blood in the anterior chamber in the eye. So it's actually, you'll see kind of blood pooling um, inferior to the pupil uh, and superficial to the uh, iris. And And it's really, it's that space between the cornea and the iris where you'll see this accumulation of blood and it's associated with a vitreous or a retinal injury in about 50% of cases. And uh, things like protective eyewear can reduce uh, these injuries. But um, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that once you see kind of blood pooling in the anterior chamber or they have a, a decreased vision, um, you're, you're sending these patients either to the ER or to uh get an ophthalmology consult because of the retinal injury and, um, whatever, whatever stuff they have in store with, uh, with an ophthalmologist, uh, to either repair that or, um, aspirate it. Uh, um, uh,
0: but and it's, it has to be scary. Like your, <laughs> getting yeah. your eye aspirated. <laughs>
1: oh man. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I have a, obviously a few friends from med school that went into ophthalmology, but I'm not exactly sure what, what they would do for it, but it's definitely concerning enough for me that, uh, they're not returning to play and that they're getting a, an urgent slash emergent, uh, ophthalmology consult.
0: Sure. Definitely. Um, and
1: then, uh, what about, uh, an auricular hematoma or a, uh, swelling of the ear slash cauliflower ear? How, how is that treated?
0: Yeah. So called cauliflower ear, Uh, Yeah. So when when you're looking at at treating these, uh, I was surprised, but you actually aspirate these. So a patient has this, uh, you know, it might be a boxer, MMA fighter, or uh, even a wrestler after maybe just a head to the ear blow and they have this auricular hematoma. You had to aspirate this and um, someone actually gives some antibiotics as well. Uh, And then there's some proponents of wrapping, uh, putting a little compressive dressing around the ear, which I actually haven't seen done, but it sounds like a good thing to do. Uh, so again, aspiration uh, prescribing some antibiotics as well as wrapping. Uh, now, when should a patient with epistasis or nosebleeds uh, be allowed to return to play? Say you're on the sidelines and they're like, doc, you know, I've been having these nosebleeds. bleeds. Uh, you know, I just had this uh, head on collision with this guy. So you're at, a, you're at a rugby game and they're still having nosebleeds. It's been five minutes and they come to you and they're like, hey, can I get in the game? Let's bleeding a little bit, but, you know, I'll I'll be sure to turn my head the other way uh, when somebody (laughs) comes towards me. (laughs) Yeah, No, I mean, you got to have a full, complete stop of
1: the bleeding more for just the kind of grossness nature. You don't want them voluntarily going out there with uh, blood coming out of their nose. Um, But yeah, so once the bleeding stops and that's when you'll really be able to rule out any CSF leaks. Um, just because, I mean, obviously our blood can coagulate and clot and uh, eventually stop. But if there's uh, enough of an injury um, to uh, kind of the base of the skull, uh, the CSF fluid will not clot. And so if they're still having a clear fluid leakage, either from uh, their nose or from their uh uh external uh meatus or, or ear canal they'll uh they are definitely not returning to play and they are uh, headed to the ER for uh evaluation and treatment um and uh kind of talking about uh injuries to the anterior face um what's the most common maxillofacial facial injury in ice hockey and other kind of contact sports
0: yeah. So for, or this is actually going to be a, a crown fracture. Um, so that's going to be the most common maxillofacial injury in ice hockey. Uh, you know, it's going to be the tooth. So the crown, and then, uh, you know, when you have these tooth injuries, you know, what, what the question is what to do with the tooth uh, you know, there's a couple things you can do. You can place it into buckle fold or you can put it in milk. Uh, and, and, and again, with the, uh, in order to reduce the in incidence of you know these mouth and tooth injuries or these oral injuries you can get mouth guards which help reduce injury thank you all for listening to our oite review on sports our first sports episode so if this is your first time listening hit the subscribe button so you get updated and fill out your email address and name in our description we are working on a companion book to this uh, oite review series so if you want to know about that fill that out and go and leave us a rating and a review and we will see you next week